Uh, let me pray for us. Um, tonight's passage is, uh, it, I think it's the hardest passage in the whole Bible. It's sad and it's hard and it's brutal. So we're going to ask the Lord to help us as we look at it. Let's pray. Father, uh, as we bring ourselves before your word and as we uh, look at a passage that, frankly, would be easier if it wasn't in the Bible, we, uh, we need for you to come and to, to make sense of this story for us and to make sense of our own lives in the midst of the reality of, of brokenness and sin and, and the harshness of this world that we live in today. Lord, and, and we also need your spirit to come and help us to realize what to do with the harshness, the reality of sin that's not just out there, but the stuff that's in here, the stuff that's in our own hearts. But Lord, don't leave us there. Tell us the good news about Jesus. Convince us that what he did for us matters. We pray these things in his name. Amen. When I was in high school, there was, uh, which was 96 to 99, holla, when you were born, um, there was an uprising of gang activity in the state of Oklahoma. No joke. Um, Paolo's like, you ain't seen nothing. <laughs> Paolo's from L.A. Um, but, yeah, supposedly there were gangs in Oklahoma. And um, not necessarily in my small town, but uh, during football season and basketball season, they would warn us about uh, traveling to these other games and, you know, wearing certain things or acting in certain ways or if, if they were coming to our turf to, like, you know, just don't wear red, don't wear blue, bloods and crips and all this kind of stuff. And, and so it kind of took on this other dimension in my mind because as a teenage guy, I'm just thinking, oh, this is awesome. I'm sure it's scary, but I want to see gang. Like, I want to see somebody do something crazy and, um, and kind of like, you know, all the excitement of that. And uh, it wasn't but a few years later when I was in college and somebody sent me uh, a, a link to a video um, and I watched it, and it, what it was was a gang that was beating up somebody. And, and the film had been caught through like a restaurant video camera out in the parking lot. And so I was, again, kind of intrigued about the whole thing. And, and so I hit um, play, and I was watching this. And what I watched happen was a gang of about 15 or 20, I guess they were all guys, I'm not sure, it wasn't that zoomed in, jumped this guy and beat him to death. And what began as a curiosity and a kind of a stimulation quickly turned to this, this deep sense of gnawing hollowness in my soul. It was, it was ugly. It was as if I was looking at evil incarnate in this video. I was, I was naive as to what all was going on in the gang world. I, I thought it would be cool. I thought it would be neat. And when you see it, you realize just the depravity of it and the hollowness of it. As I mentioned last week, when we get to the end of the book of Judges, we get two kind of zoomed-in pictures of what it means when the refrain of Judges happens. And the refrain of Judges is everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And we saw from last week that doing what's right in your own eyes, which the Bible calls evil, it calls that sin, that, that can actually look very kind of clean and put together and, and even very religious. 
That it's, it's possible to do lots of good things, to read the Bible, to say the right words, to have lots of spirituality in your life and around your life, and yet at the very same moment to actually be living in deep sin, as we saw last week. So that was kind of the pretty version, the pretty picture. This week, on the other hand, is the full-out depraved version of what it looks like when, when people do what's right in their own eyes. This is the picture of evil incarnate in the Bible. And look, whether you would consider yourself to be a Christian or not tonight, when we listen to this passage and consider it, you will want to cry, scream, you'll want to cuss, and that's actually the right response. Because this is hard. And the question, the question that comes from this thoroughgoing, you-do-you version of, of the world that we see in this passage, the question that rises out of that is this. What does God do with something like this? What does God do with something like this? So we're going to read this. And, and it's a long passage, as you'll see in your, in your um, handout there. And what I'm going to do is we're going to read it. And I'm going to make comments along the way rather than just read it all in a chunk and then talk at the end. So I'm kind of going to talk about it along the way to get, keep the flow going to explain what's happening because there's a lot of moving pieces and it's, and it's hard. So we're going to do that and then we'll talk a little bit at the end. So chapter 19, verse 1, this is God's word. In those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim who took to himself a concubine, pause, the concubine is a woman or a girl who had been taken as property for sex. That sex may have been just for pleasure or it may have been as a means to increase their family, okay, because big families oftentimes had power, okay. So continuing on, uh, a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah, and his concubine was unfaithful to him, And she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there some four months. Pause. What you're going to see in this passage is that this story gives no names to anybody. Everyone in this story is nameless and faceless. And that matters because in the Hebrew language... um, Names are are hugely important. We saw a few weeks ago when Gideon named his son Abimelech, that meant my God is king or my dad is king. But of course that wasn't true. Gideon wasn't the king. So in a culture, in a place where, where names had all value and import, the namelessness in this passage is meant to suggest this. It's very intentional and important. And here's what it means. That when it just says the Levite man What that meant is this is kind of how all the Levites were acting. The Levites were supposed to be the priests. They were like the pastors. And what they're saying is in that day, the Levites, the pastors, they were taking concubines. And that's just kind of what they were doing. And and women were treated as property. They're nameless. They just, that's kind of how things were. And fathers treated their own kids like this. That's just the way it was. The generality is intentional. And I hope you pick up on the weight of that. Verse 3, then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. And he had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys, and she brought with him into her father's house. 
And she brought him into her father's house, sorry. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And friends, what's about to follow is um, this kind of negotiation thing between the father and, and this guy who had his daughter as a concubine. And you'll notice that in that culture, and specifically in Hebrew culture, in Jewish Israelite culture, hospitality was a huge thing because God had told them, you're to love the alien and the stranger in your midst and welcome them in and, and give, them, uh, give them care and, t- and buy their food and give their animals a place to graze. Like Hospitality was a huge thing. So this is what's about to happen, verse 4. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay. And he remained with him for three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day they arose early in the morning and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread and after that you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, Please be, ple- or be pleased to spend the night and let your heart be merry. And when the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day, he arose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, Strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So they ate, both of them. And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day has waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry. And tomorrow you shall arise early in the morning for your journey and go home. But the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jabez, that is, Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddle donkeys, and his concubine was with him. And when they were near Jabez, the the day was nearly over, and the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to this city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. Pause. Let me talk about the Jebusites for just a second. The Jebusites were one of those Canaan uh, pagan nations that God had told Israel, when you go into this promised land, you are to drive them out and you're to kill them because that is God bringing his judgment upon evil. And he said, you are to do that. And we've talked about that a little bit at the beginning of the semester. If you want to talk about that more, we can. But here's the thing. The Jebusites are there in the land still because God's people did not do what God told them to do. They did not drive them out. They stayed there and they began to intermarry with them. And the Jebusites began to be neighbors and family members. So notice, though, what happens is that um, this guy is saying, No, I, I don't want to go there because those people aren't our people. Those people aren't safe. You know, to, to use the language of our, day, of our day, they aren't safe people. And this is not going to be a safe space for us. They aren't our allies and so we need to go find some, some of our brothers, some of our kinsmen, some of the people of Israel, and go stay with them, because that'll be safer. I don't know if you've ever listened to a Christian radio station or not, but to a T, 100% of the time, you will hear this on there. Come, you know, K-Love, whatever, safe for the whole family, right? And they're advertising, you're not going to hear any of those words right here. You're not going to hear any of the craziness of the world. So come and be safe right here. That's what this man is saying. We need to go find a safe place where we know that we'll be uh, treated well and dealt with. There won't be any worldly stuff there. And so they pass on verse 13. And he said to his young man, come and let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah. So they passed on and went their way. 
And the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. That's one of the Israelite tribes. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took him into his house to spend the night. You know, this is a culture, as I just mentioned, where hospitality is everything. And here's the first red flag that things are about to unravel. Because they go into the K-Love place and it's not safe. They're not feeling the love. They're there by themselves. The safe people who were supposed to welcome them in and be their friends aren't doing their job. It's probably the same thing. Um, that goes through the mind of people who who go to a church or maybe who come to RUF and are thinking, you know, yeah, that's a Christian place. There are Christians there. They're going to be nice to me, and they're going to welcome me in. And they come, and and it just doesn't happen. You know, and they they stand alone, or they're they're talked to for a second, and then backs are turned on them, and they're they're kind of left thinking, well, this this doesn't feel that great. This is a little off-putting. I was hoping for something different. That's, that's probably how they were feeling. They're out there. But then there's somebody who comes in verse 16. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at the evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim. He was actually himself a foreigner who had made his, made his residence here. So he wasn't a native person to Gibeah. So he himself was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were all Benjaminites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, where are you going and where do you come from? And he said to them, we are passing from Bethlehem and Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim from which I come. I went to Bethlehem and Judah and I'm going to the house of the Lord, but no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys with bread and wine for me and for your, uh, and your female servant and the young man with your servants, there's no lack of anything. And the old man said, Peace be to you. I will care for your wants. Only do not go spend the night in the, old, in the square. So he brought them into his house and gave the donkeys feed, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. Okay, so it was kind of a rough start. No one takes them in, but... You know, this guy gets thumbs up, thumbs up emoji, like he does it, and he brings them in, they're eating and drinking, and they get somewhere to stay. So we're thinking, okay, good. Like, things are getting better. And then the unthinkable happens. Verse 22. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, of the safe city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door, and they said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. Know is the Hebrew word for they wanted to rape him. They wanted to abuse him. Continues in verse 23. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Okay, pause. What you have to hear him saying is, No, don't mistreat my guest. Don't, don't. Don't touch him. I have to be a good host. So verse 24, Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. They wanted the man so they could rape and abuse him. 
But he wouldn't do that. He was trying to be a good host. So instead, he, he pushes his daughter and the concubine out there. At least the concubine we see right here. And they knew her and abused her all night long until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell at the door of the man's house where, where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, Get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces. And sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. The woman is raped and abused all night long to the point of death. And then the man callously takes her body, throws it on his donkey, still treating her like property. Takes her back to his house, divides, dismembers her body, and distributes her to all around Israel. As if to say, this is not okay. What is this? You can't kill my property. You just took something that was valuable to me. She was my concubine. She was my friend's concubine. Shame on you. You should feel really bad about yourself. And so he sends out these body parts to let the message go viral that I am mad about this. You took my friend's property. And I'm going to do something about it. Verse 30 And all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. Sin is the word of the Lord. So let me now summarize chapters 20 and 21. And what happens after this is that the people receive these body parts and they react. They They actually get really mad. And they unite, which is the first time they've united in this whole time period. And they unite and they say, we have to go punish Benjamin as a country, as a clan. And so the civil war erupts. And people are killing their kinsmen and killing all kinds of people. And they're continuing to treat women like property over the next two chapters. They thought that what they were doing was the right thing. They were doing what was right in their own eyes. And so the book of Judges ends right there in verse, chapter 21, verse 25. And it said, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And it just ends there. Before we try and answer the question that what was God doing, what would God do with something like this? Let me say a few things. The narrator of this passage, the author of this passage absolutely, unmistakably wants us to understand that this is the new Sodom. What's Sodom? In Genesis 19, we have a picture of a a place that was so immoral and so overcome with godlessness that the pagans and the people of that land and that city, they came out wanting to violate these angels of God, God's people, His messengers. They wanted to rape them. They wanted to take advantage of them. And so then it was, it was the evil people trying to take advantage of God's people. And what this narrator is absolutely saying is, oh yeah, that's happening again, except the people who are wanting to rape and abuse the other people are actually God's people. 
It's not them, it's us. The stuff has infected the church. So the, the, the lines of good and the good people and the bad people have become blurred. And it really is the enemies are now within the church. The church is doing the evil. Everyone, absolutely everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes. And this has been the story throughout history. It happened with Adam and Eve in the garden. They wanted to do what they wanted to do. They wanted to follow God. Uh, Sorry, they wanted to follow Satan. They wanted to be like God, doing what was right in their own eyes. And that was what Satan said. Look, you you don't have to follow him. You can be like him. And they said, yes. It's what happens here in Judges. They, they do what they think is right, and, and it's what happens with us. Ralph Davis, a commentator on this, says, The problem in this passage and in our lives is not sins, individual sins, but sin. It's that declaration of independence that, whether it's stated viciously or politely, and it says, yes, I do want to be like God, calling my own shots I want to go my own way. I was talking with uh, a friend who has become a Christian very recently, and, and she was kind of talking about the experience of what it's like to be a Christian now and to start to try to bring these various areas of her life to Jesus and to say, uh, I want to follow you in these things. And, and she's saying she just didn't realize how, how many things there were. She didn't realize how much she had just been thoroughly living for herself in in all of these different places. And she said, it's overwhelming. It's literally everywhere where I'm seeing my need for Jesus. And when I'm saying, I want to do what I want to do there, and I'm realizing I can't do that. And, And that's not just my friend's thing as a new Christian. That's my thing as a pastor. There are massive areas of my life where I still want to hold on and say, Oh, God, I don't want you to screw with my money. I want to do what I want to do. Don't mess with my vacation. Don't mess with my family. Don't mess with my kids. I want to be comfortable, God. And and, and you all do it, too. We all do it. There's all kinds of ways where I say, I want to take the reins of my life. I want to kind of do me. You know, that's the phrase, you do you, I'll do me. We want to do whatever we want to do. And so think about it reflectively for just a second. Where are you continuing, even to this day, continuing to reject God in big ways or in small ways? Where are the parts of your own life where you're insisting that you know what is best? Oh yeah, I know that's what the Bible says, or I know that's what Brent would say, or what my parents would say, but... I'm just going to do this. Are you rebelling against his plan and his calling for your future? Maybe for your body, maybe for your sexuality, maybe for the things that you worship and give your time to. Have you given in to the culture and its values maybe more than you thought you ever would? Are you trying to justify your actions before yourself and others? Where are you trying to just do you? And I guess really... The question I'm trying to drive toward is this. Can you see yourself in this passage? And before you think, no, that's terrible, I want you to consider this. Can you see that the question isn't just, what does God do with a situation like this, but what does God do with someone like me? 
And it's hard to sometimes see the parallels because in a, especially in a passage like this, the violence is so graphic and it's just, it's just like distilled evil right in front of us. And it is. But everyone back then thought they were doing the right thing. They, those people who violated that concubine, they were just doing what they wanted to do. That man thought he was doing the right thing when he sent the concubine out there instead of his guest. He just thought he was doing what was right. Where are you just thinking you're doing what's right? Again, the sin that you're living for may look different in degree, but it's all stemming from that same place which just says, I want to do what I want to do. And that is what the Bible calls sin. It's not the sins in their particular sin. It's the the rebellious heart that says, I'm just going to do what I want to do. That's the way sin works. It's, it's delusional. We don't, we don't think right about ourselves and about the world. So we need another way of looking at things. We need another place to go to determine what actually is right and what is wrong. Because, friends, it, if we are the sole judge and jury of our own lives, if we get to the end of the day, get to cast the verdict and say, oh, yeah, that was fine. If we get to do that, then we're in trouble because... Our hearts are creative enough that we will always and forever be spinning our own sin in ways that make it palatable to us and others. We just will. We're we're good like that. We're crafty. We're all politicians when it comes to our sin. This passage teaches us we need a voice from the outside to break in. And that voice actually does break in. It just doesn't happen in Judges. The voice never breaks in and judges. It's a microphone drop and it ends in a devastating way. It's just terrible. Judges doesn't give the answers. But when we take a zoom out and look at the Bible, we see that God actually doesn't stay silent. He, he seems to be nowhere at the end of Judges. They're so far gone. It's just like, I mean, God is not present in this place, but he doesn't stay silent. In his response to a situation like this and to people like you and me. And here's how he shows up. He promises throughout the rest of the Bible, God promises that he is going to deal with evil. He is a just judge. We see that throughout the picture, the pages of the Bible. He is a just judge who has guaranteed that there is no sin which, he will, go, which will go undealt with. Okay? So he's the just judge who will bring that. And so that means that that any time, any time we do anything wrong, that sin is ultimately always against God. Do you know that? that? That when you say something mean or unkind or when you gossip about someone, that it's not just this horizontal thing that's happened. It's not just that you've been mean to her. You have demeaned one of God's creatures, one of his people who are made in his image. And so your offense against her is an offense against him. Do you know that when you make the decision that you're going to do whatever you want with your own body, whether that is in regard to alcohol or whether that's in regard to sexuality or whether that's in regard to the way that you exercise and try to control every little bit and piece of your body so that you can, so that you can present yourself to the world in the way that you think is beautiful, in whatever way that is taking its shape in your life, do you know that even if it seems innocent, To treat our own bodies in such a way is actually an offense to God because guess what? He made you. And He said you're you're to live in a self-controlled way. Don't, Don't do that to your body. I love you as you are. I created you beautifully and fearfully and wonderfully. 
And so when we do those things for ourselves, we're offending God. Do you know that any time that we obsessively try and control our life and and forecast and map out the next 10 years and and kind of doggedly pursue this plan and block out people along the way, and if anything tries to violate that plan, we get so angry. Do you know that that thing that seems so innocent that we call planning is offensive to God because He says He wants you to trust Him? He says, don't worry about tomorrow. Today has enough problems of its own. And so when we worry about tomorrow, that's, a, that's sin. That's offensive to Him because we're saying, God, I don't trust You with my future. I want to hold on to it. And so all of that stuff, God's saying, I have to deal with that. I have to punish that. And Romans 6.23 says the, the wages of sin is death. All of it, whether the innocuous or the terrible, it deserves death. It deserves God's wrath. He has to do something about it. And he says that he will. He will deal with it. So there's two options. God always deals with sin, and he does it in one of two ways. He says, look, I'm actually going to enter the story, and I am going to not just condemn your sin. I am going to become sin myself. I'm going to send my son, and he's going to take the sin of the world on his person, on his body, and he's going to be embarrassed. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be spit upon and stripped naked. He's going to become sin incarnate. And if you will trust in him, and if you will receive the forgiveness that that is offered at the cross of Jesus and the life that's offered in his resurrection, then you can know that your sin has been dealt with. So that's option one. It's what Christians call the gospel. Option two is that you hold on to your sin and it remains firmly entrenched and intact in your own life. And friends, you will die. You will die physically and then you will also be resurrected. I don't know if you know this. The Bible says that everyone is going to be resurrected, some to eternal life and some to eternal condemnation and death. What does that mean to be risen to eternal death? It means this, that if you think this passage is bad, that this is a, a kind of a sliver and insight into what it looks like when people do what's right in their own eyes. Hell, what the Bible calls hell, the place where God is dealing with sin and, and measuring out His wrath against sin, is going to be this on an infinite trajectory into eternity. Everyone doing what they think is right. It's a thoroughgoing selfishness and, and self-centeredness. And everyone's going to think they're doing right. And God will not be there. And it will be as terrible as you can imagine. And so those are the two options. And I know that's kind of Debbie Downer here at the end of the semester. Um, but that's the reality of, of the picture that the Bible paints. And, and I'm just trying to tell you that the Bible is giving us a shockingly honest picture at the way things are. But at the end of the day, there are two paths. One will lead to life and joy forever, and one will lead to eternal death. And so, if you're good, if you think you're fine, and you're just, you know, maybe have a few little things wrong here and there, then you'll never understand the gospel. If you think you just need some tune-ups in your life, you will never come to Jesus because you will never think that you need Him. But the good, the good news is that if you can see the murderous things in your own heart, the adulterous lusts of your own heart, the callous hating of your own heart, 
then you're ready to receive forgiveness. You're ready to turn to God and say, I did this. This is who I am. Please forgive me and accept me. And you can know that the very God who has to deal with sin and who will deal with sin has already dealt with sin at the cross once. So you can find your life in Jesus. So if that's true of you, if you have His face, if you have His, his favor, if you have His grace and His love and His joy through Jesus, what does this look like for you? Five points of application really quick. The gospel of Jesus first means that you don't have to be nameless and faceless. What Jesus offers you, and we see this very clearly in Ephesians 1, is He offers you adoption into God's family. And I don't just mean like... God so loved the world, He kind of loves everyone generally. The Bible says there's a secondary nature to God's love, and it's a familial love. I love you guys, I do in one sense, but I do not love you the way I love my children. It's just different. And the Bible says that's how God loves His children. It's just different. And in Jesus, we get the fatherly love. We get to be adopted. Second thing, the gospel of Jesus frees you to tell your story. It frees you to to give names and words to the awful things about you, either the the awful things that you've done or the awful things that have been done to you. And look, what I'm encouraging you to do is to, to actually write this stuff out, whether that's in a journal or on a blog. And whether or not anyone ever sees it, that's kind of immaterial. I would encourage you to share it at some point with someone. But you need to be able to name the stuff that's happened to you and, and in you. Your story matters. Talk to others and listen to how God has poured out His love and His mercy and how He has forgiven them of small and huge things. We have to tell our stories. third way the gospel of Jesus frees us is that it also explodes this picture of patriarchy gone wrong. Look, it's not just that back then women were property. You know, in our culture, too, women are property. Children become property. Even in case boys and men sometimes become property. This is the whole pornography industry. This is the sex trafficking industry. This is all kinds of evil that still exists in our world. And what the gospel does, is says that should not ever be the case. That, that women matter, that children matter, that, that boys matter, that men matter, that we all have dignity. And so we should protect life. And just because men may be stronger doesn't mean they can lord it over the women. And so what we see in the Bible is that, that, that God calls husbands to lay down their lives for their wives to the point of their own death so that she might have life. We see in the church that God has, has ordained that, that men should be elders and deacons and lead the church by, by giving themselves up and serving so that others may live. It's, it's utterly backwards from what we see in Judges. That's what God is holding out. He's saying that patriarchy isn't evil. It's what sin does in that system that becomes so evil and oppressive. Fourthly, the gospel of Jesus saves you from relying on you as your own life coach. It redirects, it redirects your life and passions away from you and that crushing sense that you have to figure out what you're going to do and be for the rest of your life. God offers you a way forward. He says, love me, love others. Don't have sex outside of marriage. Respect, respect other people's stuff in their bodies. Respect their wives. Don't steal. Rest on the Sabbath. Honor your parents. Don't be jealous. Be glad for others. Love life. Celebrate it. Be faithful. Give to others. Tell the truth. These are the commandments of God. And do you know 
That God commands these things from us, not so that he will love us if we do them. He gives us these commands because he loves us. And he's saying, this is where life is found. And it's not found apart from me. We also see the gospel in another implicit way. Isn't it amazing from all we've read throughout this book of Judges, right down here to the end, that God does not just nuke them. He does not wipe them out and say, I am done. I am going to plan B. He is patient with sinners. He hates sin. And he is long-suffering with you. And he wants you to repent. And he will walk with you in the midst of your brokenness. There's a scene in the Chronicles of Narnia, the silver chair, where Jill is dying of thirst. And I'm going to finish with this. She hears the sound of running water. And, but as she approaches, she's paralyzed in fear because lying down right in front of the creek, in front of the stream, is a huge lion staring at her. And the conversation goes like this as she approaches the lion. The lion says, if you're thirsty, you may drink. And she realized it was the lion that was speaking, and the voice did not sound like a man's, C.S. Lewis says. It was deeper, wilder, stronger, sort of a heavy, golden voice. It did not make her any less frightened, but it made her frightened in a rather different way. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind, would you mind going away while I do? said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come? I make no promise, said the lion. Do you eat girls, she asked. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. I suppose I will go and look for another stream. There is no other stream said the lion. Then her mind made itself up, and it was the worst thing she ever had to do. She went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. Friends, God is terrifying because God says He's going to punish sin. He's just. But do you know the God who doesn't just punish sin... He's the God who forgives sin. And He has offered His own Son for you to forgive your sin. And Jesus said, come to me, and I will become in you like living waters. You will never thirst again forever. Do you know the Jesus who will fill and quench the parched parts of your life and soul today and forever? Let's pray together.